Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The Delta variant of COVID-19 is getting a lot of attention lately, as it is likely to become the dominant strain in the U.S. in the near future. We're also hearing about another Delta Plus variant. But this variant is more transmissible, it can infect a large portion of those who have only had one dose of the vaccine, and it can also cause more severe disease. For more on what to know about this variant and why health officials are using it to push more people to be vaccinated, we'll speak to Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. So the reason Delta is so concerning is that it's a lot more transmissible. So Delta is more transmissible than Alpha, and Alpha in turn was more transmissible than the original virus that came out of China last year. So we're looking at Delta to be about a little over twice as transmissible as the original virus. And what we're seeing in the UK right now, where Delta has already become dominant, is that there's kind of a, a spike in cases right now. The spike is actually largely driven among young people. And so actually, this is important because the UK and the US have pretty similar vaccination rates when you just look at the raw numbers right now. So what's different is the pattern of vaccination. In the UK, young people, people in their 20s, haven't been able to be fully vaccinated yet. And so you can see that with this variant is really posing as a threat for it for people who are young and who are unvaccinated, right? So I think the real kind of really big message here is with Delta is that it is more dangerous now to be unvaccinated than it was perhaps a year ago. And if you're unvaccinated, we are seeing that the vaccine does still offer really good protection against Delta. There's, there's, some, there's some changes we can talk about, especially if you only get one dose. But I think at the end of the day, Delta kind of poses you know, a danger to people who are unvaccinated if you're vaccinated, personally, you don't have that much to worry about, but we can, we'll see what that looks like. Right. Let's focus on that one little thing that you brought up because, you know, a lot of people are going through their vaccination process. They got one shot. They're waiting on the second one. Some people may have just gotten the first one and, and dropped off after that. But this Delta variant can sicken a large portion of the people who've only had that one vaccine. Tell us about that. So we have some data out of the UK that suggests that uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine and with the Pfizer vaccine, so there's the vaccines being used in the UK, that one dose only offers about 33% protection against getting sick. But with two doses, the Pfizer vaccine is at 88%, so still really good, still pretty close to where we were originally. I think one way to think about this is that it's just really important for people to get that second dose. I think it's also just in terms of understanding how vaccines work and how protection works. Um, it's not necessarily all or nothing, right? Like just because the vaccine isn't able to prevent you from getting sick doesn't mean it's not protecting you from getting less sick than you would have if you had not get the vaccine. So every dose of vaccine is going to protect you a little bit more. So, and we're seeing that with two doses, the protection still looks really good. And with the Delta variant, you know, one of those other concerning things is that it, it may cause more severe disease of COVID-19. We'll see how that bears out once we get more data as, as well. But one of the things that I did want to talk about that you mentioned in your article is that what you write is expect the unexpected. And we don't really know what's going to happen. As I mentioned, with that alpha variant, we thought it could create a big surge. Thankfully, it didn't. Except in Michigan, it did kind of do something interesting. And that's why part of this is, is just how lucky we get. Tell us about Michigan and what happened with the alpha variant and how they had a spike. Yeah, how lucky or how unlucky they got. So it's, you know, it's not 
always clear, even in retrospect, exactly what happened. But I talked to some folks in Michigan. And what happened is that in earlier this year, in the spring, in March and April, Michigan saw a pretty big spike, even though most of the rest of the country did not. Most of the rest of the country just saw cases, you know, continue to go down as we vaccinated more and more people. So it seems like what happened in Michigan is that the virus, uh, the alpha variant, arrived relatively early and it got into a population of people who were unvaccinated. So people who were still too young to be eligible for vaccination earlier this year, back in the winter when we were kind of going down by age. And especially there were, there were a lot of reports of uh, COVID spreading among youth, youth sports, so teenagers playing sports in school. And so that, you know, kind of comes up against just uh, almost luck or, or, or misfortune. I write about how there are a couple different ways of thinking about why even small changes in timing and luck can have a really big effect with this virus. And it's also kind of what makes it unpredictable. So the first thing is that viruses spread exponentially, which means that if you wait even a little bit to respond to the virus, you might have a really dramatically different outcome, even though there's still like a little bit of time. So that might be why like Michigan got the variant a little bit earlier. That made a difference. The other is that the virus is very what biologists call over-dispersed, which means most people who get the virus do not pass it on to anyone at all. But a very small minority becomes super spreaders. So that means that if you happen to have an early super spreading event in a uh, vulnerable population where most people are unvaccinated, that just might be enough to kind of trigger you into a spike that might happen in one place, but another place not, even though the other conditions might seem the same. And that's that lucky or unlucky part of it is that, you know, you don't know what's going to be small, little, tiny pockets of transmission and what's going to be that super spreader event. All of this going back to why the best way to fight all of this is to get your vaccines. And and as we mentioned, you mentioned at the end of the article, it's a luxury to say right now that Delta's eventual effects in the U.S. will be unpredictable because we have done such a good job with vaccination in some of these countries where they haven't done that well. Or maybe even some of these states, we're hearing that Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Wyoming have lower vaccination rates than others in the states. This thing can be more of a concern there. So we'll keep an eye out on all of that. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally for this week, an interesting story about when things go wrong at Airbnbs. There's a specialized safety team that mobilizes to help the problems go away. In some cases, violent crimes, or even severe property damage is taken care of by the secretive PR team who is armed with NDAs and millions of dollars in settlement money. Team members have said that the job is nerve-wracking, trying to balance the interests of the guests, hosts, and especially the company. For more on how Airbnb is spending millions of dollars to make bad news go away, we'll speak to Olivia Carville, reporter at Bloomberg News. So the safety team at Airbnb is a highly specialized team of agents. There are about a hundred of them based all around the world. And their backgrounds are mainly in trauma care or military or even emergency services response. So their real job is to do what they can to respond to safety incidents or crises when they occur on the platform. So if you can imagine, you know, on any given night around the world, two million people are staying in an Airbnb. The platform is incredibly popular. It's so well known that it's used as like a verb in everyday language. You'll often hear people say, hey, I'm going to go stay in an Airbnb this weekend. So when you've got two million people spending, you know, staying there on any given night, of course things are going to go wrong. And when things do go wrong, this is the team that 
picks up the pieces. So these safety agents, their real goal is to protect the individual in crisis and in doing so, try and protect the company's public image from you know, some of the worst safety incidents that occur on the platform or that occur inside listings that are booked through the platform. Uh, start yeah. us off with the first example that you use, because this example will kind of fuel the rest of the conversation. There was a woman uh, from out of town. I think she was from Australia and she was celebrating New Year's Eve in New York. And she was unfortunately raped in an Airbnb. And the circumstances of that was so creepy also. But if you could, please tell us that story. So this is kind of our, I guess, introduction into this piece. We really wanted to use an example of a case that a safety agent, you know, that might land on their desk or that they might have to take the call on. And also a case where the company did make a large settlement payout related to it. And I think what makes this particular situation interesting is that the crime occurred in New York City in 2015, well, at New Year's Eve that year. If we think back, that was right at the peak of Airbnb's regulatory fight with city officials in New York. And this was a pretty fierce fight between the city and the company. The city wanted Airbnb to play by the rules because it was breaking housing regulations. And Airbnb wanted the city to change the rules. You know, from its perspective, everyone wanted to home share and New York was too strict and its rules were draconian and they wanted the city to kind of get with the times. So it was during the peak of this battle that a young woman from Australia flew into Manhattan to celebrate New Year's Eve in New York. And shortly after the ball dropped, she returned to the Airbnb that she was renting with a group of her friends. She went back on her own. And when she got into the apartment, a man was inside hiding in the shadows and he was holding a kitchen knife and he attacked her. He raped her at knife point and then he fled. And one of the real concerning pieces of this particular crime is that when this man was later caught by police, they opened up his backpack and inside it, they found one of the woman's earrings, they found the knife, and they also found a duplicate set of keys to the Airbnb. And it's the fact that this individual actually had access to the apartment, he was inside it, he had the keys. And that's what kind of raises the question of potential liability for right. Airbnb. And that's one of the things that Airbnb hasn't really settled to this date, even the whole notion of the keys, the handing over the keys, when you should get them. I mean, everybody knows and everybody's seen those little lockboxes hanging either on the fence. Mm -hmm. In this case, I think they had the lockbox in a nearby bodega where they can pick up the keys. But that's something that also hasn't been resolved. And in this case, you know, as you mentioned, these some of these high profile people that work on this team, you know, enter a guy named Nick Shapiro. He was a former deputy chief of staff at the CIA. He worked as a national security advisor in the Obama White House. He was working as a crisis manager for Airbnb at this time. He was really new to it. In the end, they never really found out how the man got those duplicate keys, but the woman was paid out $7 million in this case. She had to sign like an NDA and all that. And then that story really never went public. And we never heard about that. It did result in a $7 million payout. That is one of the biggest individual settlement payouts that my reporting was, was able to kind of find. I don't think the company, you know, makes multi-million dollar payouts of this magnitude regularly. They said to us that even six-figure payouts are pretty rare for them. So this is a case that resulted in, in one of their biggest payouts. But she did not actually sign an NDA. It's interesting, the wording of the settlement agreement 
said that she couldn't assert or imply responsibility on the part of Airbnb, but it did allow her to speak to prosecutors, speak to police, or to kind of share her story about what happened to her that night. She just can't lay the blame on Airbnb. For Airbnb's part, they say, mentioned 200 million bookings a year. They say that fewer than 0.1% of stays result in some type of a reported safety issue. But with 200 million bookings, that's still a lot of safety issues right there. Tell me a little bit more Mm -hmm. about what the team does, the way you put it in the article. They're at liberty to spend as much money, whatever it takes to help those victims, obviously, and in turn helping the company. They describe it as shooting the money cannon at things. And give me some of these other crazy stories that happen. What are they telling you about how it all operates? On any average year, 200 million people are staying in an Airbnb and a tiny fraction of those stays result in a safety incident, you know, less than 1%, 0.1% of stays result in any issue. But when you have 200 million people, you're still talking about thousands and thousands of safety incidents a year because there's tyranny in numbers. When they started out, the safety crises were only small, but now they're huge. So the safety incidents get bigger and bigger as they grow, or the number of safety incidents get bigger and bigger as they grow. And that's why they've had to really like work on this team, develop a good system, develop a process and really get a sense of what they can do, what they should do when things go wrong and the extent to which they can try and help individuals in crisis. So over the course of my reporting, I spoke to over 50 former Airbnb employees, including more than half a dozen that were based specifically on the safety team. And I heard about some pretty awful cases. Obviously, given... um, You know, anything that happens in life can happen in an Airbnb. Kidnappings, hostage scenarios, drug trafficking, child abuse, sexual assault, rape, murder. All of these scenarios have occurred inside an Airbnb listing, just as they would likely have occurred inside a hotel, a motel, or in any given apartment in a city. But to give you some specific examples that were, you know, particularly difficult for the safety agents to handle. There are a few that come to mind. There was a situation of a guest who was staying in an Airbnb in Minnesota and he attended a wedding and came back to the property drunk and crawled into bed naked with his host's seven-year-old daughter. So you can imagine what it was like for the safety agent taking the call from the parents of that young girl after that occurred. And then there are other cases like a a host in Barcelona who was actually using short-term rental platforms, including Airbnb, to try and find victims. And when young women were traveling, he would, you know, offer them a place to stay through the platform. They'd come and crash on his couch. He'd take them out drinking, get them very drunk, and then attack them and rape them and threaten to upload photographs of the attack to the internet unless they dropped the case. Man was convicted. He's behind bars. He's been banned from Airbnb. But the woman in that situation did get an undisclosed payout from the company as well. I mean, it's such a tough situation. I mean, obviously, Airbnb can't control the actions of everybody. And as you mentioned, any of the number of these things can happen anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. a hotel or even somebody's own personal home. So right. that's tough. And as I mentioned myself, I, I use Airbnbs. I've never mm-hmm. had a security issue, thankfully. But these are concerns. And so what has the company done? Obviously, we're talking about this safety team that helps keep a lot of this stuff under wraps. I know their terms of service also figure into all of that. 
but what has Airbnb officials said about how they're trying to turn this around or how they're trying to approach all this? Yeah, I mean, Airbnb is pretty open about the fact that they are continuously working to upgrade, expand and enhance their trust and safety policies. Things around, for example, you mentioned party house problems. This was a big deal last year, particularly through the pandemic, as professional party promoters kind of weren't able to use you know, nightlife events, spaces in the cities as all the cities shut down with COVID. So they shifted to short-term rentals and started throwing huge parties in Airbnb properties, which turned into super spreader events. This is also a safety incident. You know, at these parties, sometimes there are mass shootings. Sometimes there are sexual assaults. Sometimes places just get absolutely trashed and the company has to come in and pay out the hosts for the damage. And in the wake of all of that, the company really created these policies to try and prevent party houses. They put a ban in place on party houses so you couldn't have more than 16 people at a property. They also banned users under the age of 25 who didn't have a history of positive reviews from booking an Airbnb in the area where they lived. So that's kind of trying to target a guest who is booking a one-night stay in you know, a 10-bedroom house just down the road from their own address. And obviously that kind of raises some red flags. They also created a high-risk reservation team that specifically tries to hunt down listings or bookings that look as though they could be suspicious or could lead to party house problems. They've put $150 million into enhancing trust and safety programs just in 2019. So the company spends a lot of effort trying to think about policies that could really prevent these kind of things from happening. But it's a really complicated, nuanced area. It's also a platform. So you have hosts and then you have guests. And sometimes they disagree on what happened. And the company has to kind of act as the mediator in that situation. And it also has to think about its own reputation, its own risk, and if there is any potential liability around some of these cases. And the safety agents are really right in the middle of all of that. They are often struggling with mental health or vicarious trauma through dealing with these pretty awful, harrowing cases. Some of them form, you know, bonds or relationships with some of the victims and are still talking to them years after the fact because they help them through an absolute nightmare and you kind of create a, you know, it creates a bond between you and that other individual who went through trauma. And these safety agents, not only do they have to kind of wrestle with the high personal emotional toll of the job, they also have to, you know, be right in the middle of, regulatory issues, cities where the company is fighting for regulations, safety crises are even more potentially concerning to its its public image and its future and its number of listings. Then they've also got the issue of the company's public image and, and what they do in terms of like offering people money to try and ensure that they don't then go onto social media and accuse Airbnb of, of doing something or being involved in the awful crime that they fell victim to. Olivia Carvel, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition.